Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. We've got a special guest who's going to kick us off this morning. Squeaky Connolly is our chair of stewardship this year, and she's got a little message for you. He's going to mic me up, although I told him I don't usually need a mic. Hi, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Squeaky Conley, and I've been a member here for a long, long time. But most of you probably know me because I've been really integrally involved in the Women of St. Michael for several years, which has really been the love of my church life here. And um, I really love St. Michael's. And I think that most of you all, if you're here on the third or fourth rainy day in a row and you got up, you all love St. Michael's too. And um, I'm really excited because I'm chairing stewardship this year. And most people go, oh, poor thing. I'm so sorry. Why did you choose to do that? I actually was really thrilled and feel like it's kind of a calling because for whatever reason, I really wanted to do it because I see the um, excitement in everyone's face and what they all know we can go and work towards at St. Michael's. And when Carolyn and I started working together in April and we started talking about this, any of you who've worked with me know that I kind of look at something and I kind of shake it up and say, what else can we do? Um, to make this thing look a little bit different. Not necessarily better, but look a little bit different. And um, one of the things that really surprised me when I started looking at stewardship at St. Michael's is first of all, I don't know if all of you all know that we create our budget here at the church with the money that we get from pledges and gifts. We don't get any money from the diocese. There isn't a group of angels that comes down and drops a couple million dollars on us to let us turn on the light. All of the money that we get comes from all of us. So every year we have to generate that, which is great because we usually do. But for the past four or five years, that's been a kind of a consistent number. And you all know that we want to grow our programs, both for our youth and children and for everyone and all of the ministries that we do here. And we can't do that if we don't grow. And the only way we can grow is through stewardship. And the other thing that really surprised me, because I love this place and so many of the people here are good friends of mine. And the only reason they're good friends of mine is because I met them here at St. Michael's. I didn't meet them anywhere else, I met them here. And so fellowship and friendship is so much at root of so many of the things that we do here. But what surprised me is only 37% of our parish makes a stewardship pledge. Well, I, I was like, what, what are you talking about? Only 37%? Well, that's shocking to me. And we started really digging into that number and those aren't the creasters. They're not people who only come once or twice a year. We've got people who are acolytes, who are on the altar guild, who are in the Women of St. Michael who don't make a pledge. And that part was what concerned me because I thought, I know they like it here, right? Because they come and they're active, but how can we get to them? So that's really what we've been working on this year. And so in the next day or two, because they've been mailed, you're gonna get a stewardship brochure. And you're also gonna get your letter and your um, ask from those of us on the um, stewardship committee but it's not just an ask from those of us on the stewardship committee. We're working this year with the clergy and with the vestry and the finance committee and everyone on the staff, because I really think it's important to get everyone in the church engaged in the direction that we all want to go and that what we all want to grow. So when you get that um, document in the next few days, I'd like for you to open it. Please don't put it in your stack of mail that you'll read in three or four weeks and decide in the end of November, because I want y'all to think about what St. Michael's has done for you. Because I stop and think about all the wonderful things that St. Michael's has meant to me, what it's brought to me. It brings me so much joy. Every time I walk through these doors, I'm at peace because I'm so happy here. And I would like for you all to think about that when you're making your pledge. What does St. Michael mean to you? What does it mean to your family? And where do you want us to go? Because we can't go unless we're all on the boat. And that's what I want to do. I want to take that 37%. I'd like to make it 100. I know that's impossible. But can we get to 60 or 70 or 80%? And how I need your help is I need you all to think about that, but I need you to, hey, John, do you like St. Michael's? Did you get your letter? What are you gonna do this year? And I think everybody can do something because I've talked to lots of different ministries and these are the, some of the things I've asked them to consider. If your Starbucks budget is more than your monthly pledge to St. Michael's, I don't know. I mean, I've had to look, I love City Cafe to go. I'm there probably every day. If that budget is more than my monthly pledge to St. Michael's, I'm gonna consider that. And ladies, this is where it kind of hits home. If your handbag costs more 
than your yearly pledge to St. Michael's? I don't know. God's been really generous to us. And the way we can be generous back is by being generous to this church. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. And boys, if your golf clubs, if they cost more than your yearly pledge, maybe we all ought to consider that. Because this is where I would like for your generosity to start. Before you give your check to NPR, before Habitat for Humanity, or anything else, if you could think about considering what St. Michael's means to you in your life, that would mean a lot to this church. And I am open to talking to anybody, good or bad. I like the good comments, because those are way more fun. But if you have a concern, please call me, email me, talk to Caroline, because I really would love to talk to you about that, because I'd love to try to help fix some of the issues that you all have, whether it's with the ministry or with the youth, or, and I'll bring it to the vestry and I'll bring it to the people that are involved, because I'm now here almost every day, well, actually every day. So um, if you all have any questions, please come to me, but thank you for giving me a few minutes, and um, I look forward to seeing you more at church and at this Bible study and at all the wonderful fellowship events that we have here at St. Michael. So thank you. All right, let's get going. Good to see you all. I missed you last week. I was having a terrible time in London. <laughs> I just wept every day because I could not be here. Um, so glad to see you all again. Glad you came out in this rainy, nasty weather. Uh, my mother and her girlfriends are actually in Texas having a little fun this week. And she landed on her way down to San Antonio yesterday and she said, it's a beautiful day in Texas. I said, yes, yeah, sorry, I can't do anything to help you about that. Um, hopefully this weekend will be prettier. Um, just want a few announcements before we get going. I want to back up what Squeaky said. This is stewardship season. This quarter is when we really begin making plans for our mission next year. If you have never pledged here, then it's time. I mean, I can, I can put lipstick on that pig if you want me to, but honestly, come on, right? I mean, we all all in this. And something I hear all the time from people who don't make pledges is that they can't give as much as they want to give. And why I can't give as much as I want to give equates to then I'll give nothing, I'm not entirely sure. And so I want you to know, I am not concerned about the amount. I want the participation. Because when you actually make that commitment, your priorities begin to shift and change. That's where the transformation happens. And that's what I really, really want for everyone here, is that transformation of making first things first, where our priorities are aligned in the right way. And that happens not because we cross our fingers. It doesn't often even happen if we just simply pray a lot. We have to do something more tangible than that. It's everything together, right? It is money, it is ministry, it is prayer, it is all of it. And if any one of those components is missing, then you're missing out on the complete experience. And so thank you for your consideration. Thank you to those of you who pledge and continue to pledge every year because we can't do what we do like this without you. Second, I want to make sure that you all know that every Thursday morning we offer another Bible study in here. It's different than this. It's the gaps in our God story program. So for those of you who have been tracking us on Sunday mornings with the 33 weeks of scripture lessons from front to back, there are gaps because we just can't get to every single page of the Bible in 33 weeks on Sunday mornings. And those gaps are filled in on Thursday mornings here in the chapel at 11 o'clock. And so in case you wanted to just add anything else, because I obviously none of you have anything to do, then come on Thursday mornings at 11. It's a totally different experience, and it's a smaller group. It's more discussion-based and a lot more Q&A opportunities. And so I just want to make sure you had that in your mind as well. Um, I feel like I had one. Oh, this. <laughs> See, that's why you put something on your wrist. So this Saturday, we're having a symposium to raise up the issue of human trafficking here in Dallas. For those of you who had not left your homes quite yet, if you were watching Good Morning Texas, I was just on, and it was trying to get the public to know about this symposium. Texas is the second worst state in the country when it comes to human trafficking. And I want to make sure you also know that human trafficking, I, I don't know about you, but I, a lot of people I talk to, they think of something like that movie Taken. Do you see Taken with Liam Neeson, right? You sort of, it, it's mostly sex trafficking, that's what people think of, and it's also the kind of thing that seems to be very um, dark and hidden away and something that we can't quite access. Well, in reality, 
the worst human trafficking is labor trafficking. There are people who work in nail salons, people who cut yards, people who are housekeepers, who are actually not doing that of their own free will. They are the people who are being controlled, often because someone's controlling the fate of their family members in another country. And so it's important that we begin to realize that we can actually be advocates for people who are victimized in this way. We can learn some of the warning signs so that if we're just out and about and we see something that's a little odd, you know, one of the most common things that happen here in Dallas is women, young women, will go to hotels, very nice hotels, and they'll sit in the lobby until they get a text message to tell them which room to go to. They'll go to that room for an hour, they'll come back down to the lobby and they'll wait for a text message to go to another room, and they'll do that all day long they can't break out of this on their own. But if you begin to learn the signs, you might actually be in a position to help save someone from that kind of slavery. And so it's a hard thing. This is not a feel good, except that it is an opportunity for us to help people that we may not know and to help people in ways we may not even know we could have helped beforehand. So Saturday's the symposium. It's gonna be an excellent day, full of lots of education and opportunities. And if you can't come, we're gonna have lots of follow-up after this to help connect you to opportunities to help people in this city. So just wanna make sure I pitched that as well. Back to Acts. Chapter five, we are on chapter five. Chapter five begins to shift us into kind of the rubber-hits-the-road style ministry of these apostles in the first century. So chapter 5 has three big sections. The first section, I like to say, something bad happens. The second section is about healings. And the third section is about persecution. Just a quick recap, the apostles have begun to form a community. We heard in chapter 4 that they began to share everything that they owned, shared all of their possessions. This is straight up communal. Everything that people have has either been sold or given to the whole community. So they are now moving away from the houses where they lived, they're taking their whole families with them. They're being baptized. They're joining quite literally like a tent community outside of Jerusalem. So if you can imagine, this isn't going to church like we think. This is actually uprooting and moving out into the little tent city on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And so there are hundreds and thousands of people who are coming to this little tent city outside of Jerusalem with all of their stuff. It's important that we recognize at the end of chapter 4 last week that they were giving over all of their stuff, and that was actually an expectation in order to join this new community because we have to know that before we get into the first section of chapter 5 when something bad happens. So I read this section, and when I was reading over N.T. Wright's book, he titled this chapter, Something Bad Happens, and it made me think of, did you all watch Sex and the City? I don't do this as often as I really think of it, um, but I couldn't help this. There was this scene in Sex and the City where Carrie's out with her on a date, and it's just terrible. And she sees one of her friends, Charlotte, across the restaurant, so she says she has to go to the bathroom, and she runs over to Charlotte, and she says, I need you to call me in about five minutes and tell me something bad happens. And she said, what am I supposed to say? Just something bad happens. Okay, so she goes to the bathroom, goes back to the table, and sits there politely for a few minutes, and her phone rings, and she answers, and she says, oh! <gasps> something bad happens? Oh, I'm so sorry. And she puts the phone down. She said, I'm so sorry. I have to go. Something bad happened. And she runs out the door. And I just love that. Something bad happens. And so that is where we are in this section of chapter five. Something bad happens. Now, the something bad that happens is actually a shocking thing. So for those of you who haven't read yet, I want to read to you basically the opening of chapter five. So if you turn to chapter five of Acts, First verse, a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part, brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. Uh, what? <laughs> this is intense. Oh, it gets worse. <clears throat> Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, which, uh, three hours, I don't know, it's funny. Um, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. How funny is that? So I just, I find it funny when the dialogue says, like, for such and such a price. What, you didn't, you can't make something up? So, you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. All right. Something bad happened. Okay. The first time I ever read this chapter, I mean, I was appalled because this is not, this is not normal. And it is okay. I want you to know this is not normal, right? For those of you who have not ever read the entire Bible front to back, this does not happen very often. It, it does happen a couple times, but this is an exception. It is stark. It is harsh. And there is really no way around it. This is what the story says happened. Ananias and Sapphira did not give over everything. And so they were struck dead. I mean, good grief. At least you could have been like, you can't stay here and go home. I mean, something, right? Died? For those of you who were in service in uh, worship last Sunday, you heard the story of the rich man, right, who runs up to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Sell everything you have and give it all to the poor and follow me. In essence, what these apostles are doing is just that. They are selling everything they have. They are giving away everything they own to the good of the group. Now, when Jesus says give it all to the poor, I think what the apostles have perceived is that they create a big pot. They take care of each other, right? That is really what's happening in that tent city, is they are caring for one another. There will be lots of people who show up to that tent city with nothing, right? Then there are people like Ananias and Sapphira who show up, and they actually had some wealth. I mean, owning land, enough for people to know about, that was uncommon. And so these wealthy people show up, and the people who have nothing have nothing to give. The people who have a little bit have given the little that they had. Here come the wealthy people. We have to assume that Ananias and Sapphira were at least as wealthy as the top five, two or so percent of the people in that tent. It is likely, even if they held back a portion of what they owned, they were giving way more than anyone else had given in this community. And yet they didn't give everything, and they're killed. I won't say that I asked Squeaky to come talk to you today <laughs> ahead of this story, but I'm just saying, you know, don't question the spirit. <laughs> okay, so this story is just, is just simply hard. It's important for us to not explain it away. It's important for us to not perhaps interpret it away as they died in spirit or something like that, right? No, they're dead. And what I, what I skipped reading in here, but what is in the passage, is that the people who saw this were frightened. Wouldn't you be? I mean, really kind of frightened, like, crap. You know, I mean, you can't, you really can't mess up. Because I think it's fair to say they just kind of messed up. I mean, had they been threatened? Had they been found out? Had they been given a chance to maybe give the rest of it? Would they? Maybe. 
but they're not even given the chance. Boom, they're dead. There is power with God. We often like cuddly, cozy God, right? Buddy Jesus is what I call it. People love Buddy Jesus, you know, my friend Jesus. I have never liked, personally, the idea of Jesus and God being my friend. I have friends. I don't need them to be my friend. I want them to be God. What I really need is God. I need strength and power, clarity and purpose, and hope to overcome what is really bad about this world. And when we distill God down to our friend or to someone who's like a warm blanket on a cold night, we lose the power that I personally need God to have. And so and for me, this story simply reminds me that God is God. God's not our friend. Doesn't mean God can't be friendly, but God is God. And we should not take for granted God's total power. That's the end of that section. Any questions or thoughts before we move on? All right. We're going to begin and end with, you know, not quite feel good. Here's some feel good. So, section two, healings. Peter and the apostles have really taken seriously the idea of going out and telling the story of what's happening to them about Jesus, about this way of life, inviting people into this way of life. And they're not doing so only outside the city. They are going right into the heart of the Jewish identity. They're going to the temple, teaching in the porches. So I want to take just one second to explain what that idea means. So we often think of a, um, of a church as being a building with some hallways, you know, a parking lot kind of thing, relatively tight and small. The temple was bigger than that. It's not quite a college campus, but you can equate it to a mini campus of sorts. It's a big space, and there are lots of little spaces where you can congregate. Lots of trees, lots of nooks, lots of little porches, where they would literally have a covered area where people could sit either out of the sun or out of the rain. It doesn't rain that much, so it's usually the sun, to keep them cool where they can talk about theology, religion, the way to live, debate ideas. So it was very common that people who, I suppose, had the time would go to the temple and would sit under the shade of these porches. Not just one porch, and it's not a little porch. They're all over the place. Porch is really just referred to as a space that's shady. And so you couldn't necessarily see what's happening on the one porch at any given time. It's happening all over the place. Does that make sense? So Peter was going to the porch of the temple to teach. He was showing up, and people were coming to him and learning about Jesus. On the way to the temple, people figured out that he could heal. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Peter spontaneously healing the beggar. Peter has now become this presence of God, so much so that people would line up those who needed to be healed just so Peter's shadow would pass over them. And when Peter's shadow touched them, they would be healed. Scripture says, as they went along the path, as Peter would walk along the path, his shadow would touch those in need, and all were healed. That's what Scripture says. All. This is remarkable. That's a big thing. Peter is not just teaching. Peter is physically witnessing to the power of God. Remember back with Ananias and Sapphira, God is power. Peter is bearing that power into the holiest spot for Jews. And in doing so, getting a lot of attention, and then teaching them something that is not what the Jewish leadership once taught. That's the big note in this little middle section. He's getting a lot of attention, 
the Jewish leaders are not happy about his attention because he's teaching something that is not the same as the leadership is teaching. Any questions about that before we move on to the persecution section? In the temple? Ah, good question, Beth. Um, I don't feel confident. I'm sorry, the question was, would there have been women and children there or only men? I'm not totally confident in answering this. I think, and I'll confirm this, that the exterior of the temple, which is where the porches would have been, were open to everyone. They were, this area around the temple, sort of the grounds around the building itself, would have been the same place that the market was, that Jesus overturned the tables. So it's inside the walls, but it's not really inside the building. So I, I think it would be almost like our farmer's market. It's on the campus, but it's not quite in the building. So I'm going to go with women and children could be there, but I will confirm that because it is still the exterior, the first ring inside the walls of the temple. Any other questions? That's where the porches are. Yeah, the question was, how do I know it's in the first ring? So if you think about the temple, the temple is almost like an onion. There are layers that go to the core, and as you, as you go into each, each layer closer and closer to the center, fewer and fewer people can go into that layer. So you've got kind of everybody's in the pool in that first layer. And then as you go into the next layer, you do have to be cleansed Jew. By cleansed Jew, what I mean is there are, there are very detailed ways to be clean, ritually clean. Around the exterior of the temple, there would have been mikvah baths that look like kind of um, in-ground tubs, kind of in-ground, tiny little in-ground pools. And there was a complex pathway system where you would walk a particular path to the pool, go into the water to be cleansed, very much like a, a baptism, immersion baptism. That's where we get the idea of baptism is because that was the way that Jews would have kind of ritually cleansed themselves. And of course, what is baptism but a sacramental ritual cleansing, right, of our sin. So that's same, same kind of thing. They would go into the water in, on one set of stairs and they would come out of the water on another set of stairs and then walk a specific path for people who are cleansed. So you couldn't walk the same path as the dirty sinners. You had to walk the path of the clean, sinless ones. And if you somehow got off that path or touched a person or anything like that, it could mess you up again. And you'd have to go back. It's like religion OCD. And so they had this whole elaborate thing going on to make sure that they remained ritualistically clean. You had to be ritualistically clean in order to get into that next ring in the temple. So it's not easy to do. Most of the time, that's only men because the ideas of ritual cleanliness were very hard for women. If you had given birth, you're ritually unclean for months. If you were menstruating, you have to wait seven days until you are done in order to be clean, which effectively means you maybe have like 50% of the time you could even be clean. And that's if you've not done, if you've not had intercourse, if you've not touched a dead body, if you've not eaten certain foods and all. I mean, so I imagine for many women, it was just like, forget it. You know, it's just too much. Um, and so most of the time, you know, men would have really been the ones that would have gone through that ritual cleaning in order to go into the temple. So as you go in and in and in, then at one point you have to be a priest. Then at the next point you've got to be a, there are levels of high priestness. Um, and so if you're, you're sort of like a new priest and then an older priest and then a really good priest and then the high priest, and there's all these different layers that you can't go into unless you're of a certain status, so to speak, religious status. 
Ah, so the question is, when Scripture says that the veil of the temple was torn, so Jesus didn't tear it, it tore after he died, right? So when the veil of the temple is torn, remember back to the Israelites with Moses at Mount Sinai. They build the ark, and the ark is the thing that's got the eagles on it that's held up by sticks, and you can't touch it. And we know you can't touch it. They said you can't touch it. And it's lost at some point. King David actually goes and reclaims it. They carry the ark into Jerusalem. David dances in front of the ark with his little ephod, and um, his wife gets mad because he's being silly, and that's a great story. We'll get to that. And one of the people carrying the ark the ark starts to bobble and fall, and he lifts up to steady it so the ark won't fall, dies. So remember, this has happened before. It's not common, but just drops dead. You can't touch it. And so, I'm sorry? Yeah, God, I mean, theoretically, God killed all of them. I don't know. I don't, eh, yes, that's what the story says. So, sure. So, the ark is brought back to Jerusalem. David is king, but David is only a military and uh, political king. His son Solomon is the wisdom king. Solomon actually builds, rebuilds the temple. That is the second temple, the temple that Jesus goes into, the temple we are talking about Peter speaking around. Um, I just lied to you. That's the first temple Solomon builds. Then they go into exile, then they come back, and Nehemiah and his crew rebuild the temple. But the ark is put back into the temple because the ark holds the Ten Commandment tablets and is God's physical presence on earth. You can't look on the ark once it's in the temple. You can't touch it. You can't. So in order to conceal it to keep people safe, there was a big piece of fabric, a veil, that actually was put around the ark in the center of the temple. When Jesus dies and the veil of the temple is torn in two, the symbolism is Jesus has undone or remade everything that the Jews held most dear. That's the idea. So in essence, all of the stuff that the Jews had done in good faith to help guide their life was remade in Christ. Does that make sense? That's what the symbolism of the veil is. It exposed the, the ark, basically. Can I ask you a question? No. <laughs> yes, yes, go ahead. <laughs> no, what's your question? I always, always stop short of saying, let me think how I'm going to say this. Short of the words of Jesus, I always stop short of assuming a literal view. And so... When someone's telling the story about God doing something, for me, there's always an option to say, they thought God did that, but we don't know that God really did. And so a great example of that, right now on Sundays, we're talking about Joshua, we're about to talk about Judges. Did God actually effectively kill an entire group of people? Well, I'm very comfortable saying no. That God's intent was good things for the Israelites. Their expression of that intent would not have pleased God. That killing people is never going to be God's goal. And so, which obviously flies in the face of lots of different bits of the Bible, because people thought God did intend death. It's okay if, that, if I'm wrong. I don't need to be right about everything. Um, 
But I do think that in this instance, we have to stop a little short of presuming we might be able to even answer some of those questions because we are not the ones who can even answer that. So, I mean, for example, your question of what about Ananias and Sapphira? They obviously believe something about Jesus. I, I think it's easy to assume they'd likely been baptized. I mean, you don't show up having sold everything that you owned without having done at least something before you got there. So it's very likely that they were already connected to this community in some formal way. And showing up without giving over everything, did God do that? Well, that's not the God I think we see in Jesus. Did they actually die? I mean, I kind of think they may have because the story's told this way. And so why is the die... Well, so I think implicit in your question is your assumption that God is somehow soft. And I don't think that's really the case. You know, most Christian, most Episcopal churches have gotten to the point where they've sort of distilled down theology into something that is so, so universal that I think they've lost a bit of the edge. And one of the things that I certainly don't think is that God's love is for everyone, but that doesn't mean that it's cheap. And we, I think, tend to cheapen it because it makes it easier. And what I take from this story is not the specifics about the death, because we just can't know. And so you can spin in that wheel all you want. We just really don't know is the answer. So instead, I take, that, take it as a reminder that the life that we seek to live is not easy and it's not cheap. And we cheapen it at our own risk. And whether that's physical death or it's spiritual death doesn't really matter. I mean, physical death's, I think, easier in many, in many ways. And we... You know, when I say to you things like, you've, you've got to give and invest in this community, it's not because I like this building and we need to keep a roof on it. I, I don't care. It's because I take critically that if we do not give generously, our souls are at risk because what the world offers us is so tempting we can easily explain away our inability to invest in something sacred because we just don't have enough or we are afraid of some so-and-so happening. And when we choose to let the fear make our decision for us, we are not following this way. It's not easy. And I'd love to, like, kind of give you a hug and say, oh, it's okay, you don't worry about it. Or, and maybe I will, just because sometimes I give in, too. But the truth is, this is not easy. And if we make it too easy, we've missed the power of the transformation that we find in Jesus. It's not necessarily answering your question, which I'm not going to, by the way, um, because it's hard. We, we, I, I can't. Um, and I don't know that we can really know the answer to some of those. We don't know how they died. We don't know. Um, so I cannot answer that. I mean, I don't know how they died, why they died. It says they did. And it's, it's, it's pretty, I think it's, it's kind of, um, one of the unique things about this story is they didn't say why or how. They just said, I mean, what, it, what the language it literally said, they dropped and died. Um, I mean, it was, he fell down and died. I don't, I don't think it's an accident or an oversight that we don't know why and how. I think it may, have, it may leave it open-ended 
for us to perhaps take what we need to take out of that story. If we, if we know too many specifics, you know, which we love to do, we love to know as many details as possible, I think details can oftentimes m make a big idea easy. So, for example, <laughs> I, had, I remember someone said to me once that the gospel is pretty simple, but we created theology in order to make it seem very complex so we don't have to actually do it. <laughs> and that's sort of how I feel about this moment. If we knew a lot more about how that happened, we could almost begin to build parameters around it and be able to say, well, that's them here. I'm over here, so I'm good. Instead, they didn't give it all away. They fell down and died. That's all we have. That's a much kind of scarier story. You know, the best scary movies are when you don't see the scary thing because then you, your imagination actually runs wilder than whatever you can see on a screen. And I kind of think that a story like this invites us to wh whatever makes us uncomfortable, we need to chase that a little bit. When we need to know more, I want us to ask why we need to know more. Because that's going to help us figure out something about us. Whenever I prepare a sermon, I often read through, this, through the scripture passages, and whichever part of the passage I don't like or that makes me uncomfortable, that's what I preach on. Because that tends to be what I need to hear most. And any, any preacher, I think, will tell you that we preach to ourselves first. Because we need to hear it too. And as you go through these stories, some are going to feel just fine and some are going to feel bad. How does it feel bad? What are you wondering most about? Don't ignore that. Because I think that's how you figure out your own opportunity for growth. And we can all grow, right? None of us are done. Okay, we're going to press on. Oh, man, 10 minutes. Okay. So persecution. Here's really perhaps the, the takeaway from this chapter is Peter's perseverance in the face of persecution. Peter and the apostles he was with get arrested. Like I said, they've gone to the porch. They're right outside the temple. They're teaching some stuff the leaders don't like, so the leaders arrest them. Send them to the public prison. Then if you look at verse 19, during the night, while they were in prison, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, go stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message about this life, this way of living and following Jesus. What I think is most remarkable about Acts is that we are watching these faithful people figure out how to be Christian, figure out how to follow Jesus, figure out this life of following Christ. As we watch them figure this out, I want us to be inspired. When the angel says, go stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message, this really roots us in what Christianity becomes, which is an evangelical tradition, right? Christianity is the first major religion where one of your goals is to get people to join with you. That is a new thing. At this point in time, we in essence have three-ish global religions. We've got Judaism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Hinduism and Buddhism are happening over in India and China, so not really affecting this area. Judaism is really the big religious group of this region. None of those traditions are interested in evangelism. They're not asking people to join. In fact, for many of them, you can't join unless you are from a particular set of people. Christianity turns that all on its head 
we get a religious group whose arguably primary role is to tell people the story and get them to join along. That is a very new thing. And so Peter gets out of prison. When the authorities wake up the next morning, they call for these men to come up in front of the council, and the jailers or whatever go and find that they're not there. Where are they? The leaders ask. Someone runs up and says, they're back teaching in the temple. So in less than 24 hours, they've been arrested for teaching in the temple, put in prison, released from prison by an angel. They show back up to the same spot and are teaching again. Can you just, for a second, put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish leaders? They are so mad. Their authority is being mocked. And so they call them again in front of the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, this is verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, Jesus, which is part of the, of the point of the story is you teach in Jesus' name. The name has power. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Peter says, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They could have been killed on the spot for this. Make no mistake, they just claimed the clearest heresy in front of the temple council. They could have been executed in front of them. But why didn't they? Peter's been healing people by his shadow as he walks into the temple, teaching people to be hopeful in the face of oppression you think that council could have gotten away with killing those people, Peter and his friends? No, no. Talk about a revolution. Even though they wanted to kill them, one of the great rabbis, Gamaliel, stood up. And the end of chapter 5 is the words of Gamaliel. So before I read them, Gamaliel is, in Jewish tradition, today, considered one of the greatest rabbis of all time. So if you were to, well, I was going to say, if you were to ask one of your Jewish friends, it's very likely they wouldn't know this. But if you were to just uh, Google greatest rabbis ever, right? Gamaliel's going to be on a very short list of five or six. He's held up as a true, brilliant scholar. He is so good that the best Jewish scholars of the day were his students including a guy named Saul that we're going to meet in a few chapters. So Gamaliel stands up in front of the council and says to them, Fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him... Judas, the Galilean, rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, keep away from these men and let them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God himself. Logical. Gamaliel says, remember that guy? He had a lot of people who followed him, and he was killed, and they kind of scattered. Remember the other guy? A lot of people followed him, and after he died, they were scattered too. But this Jesus, his followers are not scattering. They're getting stronger. So either you, it will fail, or it's of God. And if it's of God, killing them is not going to stop it. 
It's a pretty profound moment for a, a universally respected rabbi to claim such a logical opinion. Remember, C.S. Lewis once answered in a debate, how do you know that God is real, was, he was asked. And he said, well, if God isn't real and I believe, what harm has been done? But if God is real and I don't, I'm in trouble. In essence, Gamaliel is saying, this is of God, we can't stop it. And Peter and the apostles, we will see in the next chapter, are emboldened by this claim. Any final thoughts or questions? Yes, one in the back. So, so the very beginning was what was the what? Main concern. Got it. Okay. Um, so what was their main concern? Judaism is a set of laws that creates, in essence, you can think of it like a railroad track. Judaism created a track of laws. You stay on the track, you're good. What Peter is teaching is that the law is not what saves you. It's faith and commitment to telling the story of Jesus. That's how you're saved. It undermines everything that the Jewish tradition is founded on, which is the law saves you. For Jews, and even today, this is... This is slightly unfair because most Jews that I know really do believe. But if you really distill it down, Judaism is about right practice. It's not really about belief. Now, one can argue, I think very effectively, that if you practice in the right way over time, you do actually shape the way you believe. Yes. But it's the practice that is crucial. Belief is great, but it's not necessary. Christianity flips that and says it's the belief that is most critical, then, of course, if you have the right belief, you're going to practice right, too. But the starting place is the belief, not the practice. It's, in essence, it's a total flip of Judaism. And so their offense is almost complete because they're saying that Judaism is completely wrong. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Thank you all very much.